Hello, welcome to Process. My name's Stephen Walsh. This week, we're talking to part of the creative team behind this Christmas's show at the Suffolk Playhouse, which is an adaptation of Stan Sakai's Usagi Jimbo. So we'll be talking to Stuart Melton, the person who's adapted the piece. Hello. Uh, Ellie Slade, the designer. Hi. And Amy Draper, the show's director. Hello. So first things first... Is there anyone here that would consider themselves a comic reader, as in you regularly read comics? Laughter says no. No. <laughs> I would. I you would? would. <laughs> someone has to. Even after someone's laughed at the very idea. You're happy to do that. <laughs> Particularly after someone has, has laughed at, the, at that um, prospect. So uh, what comics do you read? Uh, well, I was, I'm quite a latecomer to comics. I... Um, as a, as a child, I had some exposure to like the Eagle and the big franchises like the Beano and some things tied to TV like the Turtles and Thunderbirds. And then as a teenager, I kind of, I suppose I was just doing other things. Then as an adult, I think I came to them, oddly enough, through my literature degree and started getting into mangas like Akira. And I think through that, through the manga link, I got into the work of Frank Miller um, his reboot of Batman and some of his other work with a sort of manga influence like Ronin I think is, um, is, is my favourite of his work and some of the Sin Cities as well yeah and now I'm, I'm, I think I'm quite orthodox and the sort of I, I, I read the canon um, but I also like the, the kind of graphic novel end like Persepolis and Exit Wounds and, and Mouse Mouse, Mouse indeed. is brilliant yes Talking of anthropomorphic comics. Yes, yes. indeed, yes. <laughs> a very good example. So you've read Mouse. I've read Mouse. Um, I, one of my favourite authors, actually, is Sean Tan, on the sort of graphic novel spectrum. Um, the Arrival's one of my favourite books, actually, full stop. It, yeah, it's just incredibly beautiful and tells stories in a really vivid way, um, but with no language at all. So, yeah, that's been on my shelf for many years. And then I read Bunty when I was a child, but I don't know if that fully counts. <laughs> Absolutely. I read Bunty as a child. Did you? Of course, yeah. No, I was a voracious comics reader, so I'd read anything that was put in front of me. So, Ellie, you laughed at the idea of reading comics. Oh, well, but... I laughed because I was slightly embarrassed about the fact that I'm working on a show which is uh, such an established uh, comic, and it's not, uh, comics aren't in a world I know very well. And uh, my brother was really into the Beano when we were kids, so of course I would read his Beano, and so I'd read the Beano and the Dandy. But... I'd never, I never read Bunty. I think I read a little bit. My mum bought me something and I tried to read a little bit of one at one point, but I didn't really take to it. But I did really enjoy The Beano and the Dandy, so I suppose I enjoyed the beginnings, but I didn't then, moving into adult life, follow that through. I did work on a production where we took a lot of inspiration from Sin City comics, so I have a little introduction through that, and of course the films, I love the films. And I love the visual side of things, but I, I, for some reason I've never really taken to the story side. Working on this production, I had an interesting conversation with Amy early on where it, it transpired that with the way I read a comic is not necessarily the way that she might read a comic. And I tend to look at the pictures and I skip back and forth around the page and I'm not following in a lin- linear way, I'm not following the boxes in a linear way. So I find the speech bubbles quite difficult to read because all I get distracted by by looking at all sorts of different things, which I really enjoy looking at, but then I find the story a little bit harder to get to grips with in that way, which was quite an interesting moment for us when we (laughs) realised that. Oh, okay, right. And I suppose that visual style influences me a lot, but, yeah, not necessarily as a comic book reader as such. 
Yeah, I find it interesting that you, you, you weren't engaged with them in that it's a very, obviously, very visual form mm. of storytelling and you uh, work as a designer. Yeah. But there is an issue of, um, you know, comics literacy. If you don't read a lot of comics, then yes. the, yeah. how you read comics, mm. f- for someone who's more experienced, you, you sort of put trust in the artist and they yeah. guide your eye along the page using very sort of subtle tricks. Mm. But if you're not almost buying into that, if you've not invested in that, then it will just be a case of you moving from mm. the most prominent images, which can sort of disrupt the flow of the story. Yeah, I did, um, I have some comics left over from a show I did a while ago, actually another one with Amy, where we had some comics as some props, which were getting thrown out at the end of the play, and I decided, oh, well, I'll keep these, these are interesting. And they were just little, little thin things, and I don't really know what they were, but I'm sure one of them was called Gripper. I don't know. But there was a character... <laughs> His face says no. <laughs> yeah, and I'm, that, that really annoys me, because I'm supposed to know all these. <laughs> well, it might be completely wrong. It might not be called Gripper at all. I might just completely making that. Anyway, there was, I started reading it one day when I was just at home, um, starting to research for this project, although it's nothing to do... The, 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 the um, contexts aren't the same or anything, but I just had it at home. And, um, and I found it really hard. I had to read each page, like, three times. And I had to, I didn't understand what's going on here. And I got so confused with who's talking. And I, and I found it really, really hard. But visually, it was great. Really, really enjoyed it. Excellent. It sounds like you've been surrounded by comics. In every well, no, you talk for longer than both Yeah, more, more, more than anyone. You've read, <laughs> even me, you've read comics. This is ridiculous. So, Stuart, in terms of the adaptation, you'd, you'd read Turtles comics. So yes. you were aware of the character of Usagi Ojimbo. Yes. Had you read Usagi Ojimbo as a, as a book before? No, funnily enough, not. I, I wonder if, if his sort of cameo in the Turtles actually had made me think that he was, he was a Turtles character, purely um, um, of that universe. I should have known that if he'd come from another dimension, he probably <laughs> had his own, his own series somewhere. But um, no, oddly enough, this, this project, well, when, when Chris, artistic director here at, at Suffolk Playhouse, approached me about the project, that, that was my introduction to the character, his own storylines and universe. But yes, the character itself actually had been, is so iconic, and, uh, you know, immediately I recognised him from... I think I even had the, the figure of him. Well, I was going to say, yeah, he turned up in the comics, the TV show, and even got a figure in that series. Yeah. Because Stan Sakai owned the character independently, could, so could sign deals with all these different companies without having to worry about a parent company sort of stepping in and asking for their car or worrying about the character turning up too much. I think it, as, as well, it was... I know it was quite a prestigious thing, you know. Now, now that I know it was quite a prestigious thing for the for the turtles to ha- to have that cameo and that crossover, that other audience sort of engaging with um, with their stories. It's only I remember Usagi being providing quite a contrast in terms of like the the, the turtles being sort of uh, you know very irreverent and teenage <laughs> as you might expect, <laughs> and then Usagi very grounded and spiritual and quite taciturn. Amongst all the cowabungas. And <laughs> <laughs> I think he bonds a little bit with Leonardo because he's got a yes. similar code of, of ethics and morals. Yeah, it's the closest he gets to, to bonding with any of them. But as you say, yeah, generally, he would be sort of looking sideways because they're leaping on the wall. So, <laughs> are we fighting these guys? <laughs> so, in terms of the books now, in preparation mm. for the show, did you read a lot? Did you, was it a particular storyline that you targeted or was it a case of just reading a selection of things and getting the, the tone of the piece? Uh, so Chris approached Stan about adapting comic and suggested taking the the sort of samurai story from volume two of the collection. That, that was my sort of principal point of call. But subsequently, I read, I 
think pretty much all of them now. I've, I've got through the whole, the complete Usagi Yojimbo. Yeah, I've got so, an online archive of them. Yeah. I've got 29. Fantastic. We haven't read Senso, so we haven't read the War of the Worlds one. Yeah, Senso, I'd imagine, would be a bit of a... It, I mean, uh, a samurai rabbit is a tough sell in terms of mm. adaptation. A samurai rabbit where a rocket full of aliens falls onto the battlefield. I mean, there's Space Usagi as well, if you're yes, show for next year. I mean, if they, <laughs> yeah. you'll have all the, the you know, the makeup. 29 really. next shows is sorted. <laughs> so the, I guess the backbone of the... Of the adaptation is grounded in samurai with, I suppose, sort of cherry picking some of the best bits from sort of... I was going to say, it's such a rich thing and, and so many of the stories are these wonderful little one-shots and little moments almost mm. that you could incorporate into a, a larger story quite Absolutely. seamlessly. I think oh, like one of the challenges and in some ways like the toughest thing for for me and for in conversation with Amy and Ellie has been... Um, say goodbye to you know different elements of really wanting to to put them in and and not not having the space to or not having the the time I suppose to properly introduce them to our audience. I feel like it it's part of my duty to make something that the the fans will enjoy, but anyone whether this is the the first time they've been met Usagi or this is uh, a character that they've they've enjoyed that they've known deeply for 30 years can appreciate and enjoy and get something for them so it's it's something of an origin story but taking taking some of the best bits from the later comics as well in terms of the, the practicality of the adaptation as well and obviously he's a samurai rabbit but the entire world is made up of anthropomorphic characters there's rhinoceroses and foxes Were, was there any character that you really wanted to include but just found it entirely impractical oh loads yes. <laughs> <laughs> Take your pick. Goodness. Bat, uh, bat ninjas, I'm guessing, are a tough yeah. eater. Bat ninjas don't appear. I'm yeah. Right. Yeah. Or, the, or the mole ninjas, the Maguro, Naguro ninja. Yeah, they're amazing. Zato Ino. Genichi. Jen. Yeah. There's so, much, so many characters that we would have. And and storylines as well. I think the, 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 the Dragon Bellow conspiracy is a sort of a standalone sort of piece. would be a, like a fabulous, fabulous standalone you know, play film, it, it's ripe for adaptation, as are the grass cutter um, uh, storylines as well. They're, they're so rich and so varied in the the action beats and the the cast of characters that they they bring in. It's just um, you you need to have a relationship with Asagi already to to be able to kind of jump in at the at the deep end. That's very much sort of in the middle of his storyline, I suppose. So. Maybe a sequel. Well, <laughs> also, Stan Sakai draws on so much himself mm. in creating the books with Japanese history, mythology, and folklore, as well as his own ideas about about story. So, you know, I imagine it was probably quite overwhelming to sort of look at the the, the canon and try and work out what you wanted to, to take from it. Stan's a very nimble writer, and he's his his work is very densely densely constructed. The the range of references from like. Well, Kurosawa, Yojimbo and Sanjuro, you know, obvious and, and very big influences, I think, into like the overall look of the and, and tone of the, the comic. And yet the, 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 the roots of it are the animal funnies, you know, from, you know, going back to, to Disney and, and earlier. So there's, yeah, it's trying to, it's trying to marry, I suppose, the a sense of the Kurosawa sort of epic with something that's, can be silly, I suppose, silly and And light. human as well. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. If you can say that about an anthropomorphic. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah. actually a really big question we've been talking about a lot is, um, are these characters 
animals with human qualities or humans with animalistic qualities? Why did Stan choose certain animals mm. for certain characters? And we had an interesting conversation a couple of days ago whereby it sort of transpired that when Stuart was writing this, he, um, he didn't necessarily see Usagi as either animal or human. So we're just kind of seeing him as a character as opposed to either. But um, in rehearsals, we started to do a lot of work on sort of physicality and movement and animal qualities. But then we're going to pair that back, I think, because ultimately he's a sort of standing human-ish character. He's not on all fours. <laughs> he's, not, he's not a real bunny rabbit. But I was going to say, in terms of of direction of, mm. of the actors, is uh, have you sort of talked about mannerisms and ideas from animals and, and working mm. that into performance? We will be, yes. We've actually, um, tomorrow, we've got an animal session <laughs> um, with our assistant director, who's called Steph DeWorley. Um She's running um, a couple of hours on on animal qualities. But my, and my idea with that session is to go really far with it, so kind of as though they were playing real animals, and then take what's useful and bring it back and incorporate little kind of ticks and movements into the characters. Yeah, I don't envisage them being hugely animalistic, except in certain moments. Katsuichi um, displays very animalistic qualities at times he roars for example so that's <laughs> obviously very lion-like but yeah we'll certainly be looking into that definitely and just to give us an idea of the range of the show mm-hmm. without giving away specific characters could you give us an idea about the, the kind of animals that you will be involved yeah we've got rabbits as you'd expect <laughs> we've got lots of rabbits some dogs a tiger a cat lion i'm looking at Stuart now what else have we got we might have a dragon but that's a a bit TBC. <laughs> I'll, we, actually, I'll explain that a bit in a minute. Do we, do we have a goat, Ellie? We do. We have a yeah. goat. A foxhound, Alsatian, they're certain types of dog. Yeah. We toyed with lots of different ones, and we went through various iterations of it. This was going through the costume design. Different characters, and they've changed and developed as we've gone along. So we did have other horned animals. Uh, the horns presented a slightly more... Mm difficulty practically speaking which is, i think one of the reasons why i started to move away from horns but we do have a we do have a horned creature and uh, raccoons came up a lot and i was quite keen on raccoons it's one of those things that um i think fit quite nicely and then but i don't think we have any raccoons in the end but um it's one of those things that things have to be stripped back really because you end up with so many ideas and so many different uh, ways you can go um, and really, you have to strip back quite a lot, I, I suppose, like just like the script. You, know, you have to strip back so much to be able to then find a line that, that can stay cohesive as, a, as just one performance, you know, just one play. In terms of the design, have you, have you worked on anthropomorphic shows before in terms of blending human-animal qualities? No, that's one of the reasons I'm so excited about it, because reading the comic, what became so obvious was that we didn't want to go to, I don't know how else to describe this, but Disney comes to mind. We didn't want to go to animal, I suppose, or to cartoony animal, especially, because when reading the comic, there's such a sincerity, there's such a uh, seriousness about those characters. These characters really exist, you know, there's no... There's no sort of sideways glances or references to the fact that he's a rabbit. You know, nothing. So everything is extremely sincere. And I think that's something we really honed down on because we needed to respect that and find the essence of what that is and transfer that to stage. So looking at the costume designs um, and the wig designs to, to create animals mixed with humans, that was a, you know, a balancing act of how much animal, how much human. And I suppose we, we found a way that we feel sincerely mixes an animal with a human. 
And I think, yeah, I think it's, it's the right way to go. And I think that ma- matches quite nicely with the characters and how it's written as well in the adaptation as well as the original comic. Because obviously, um, when you say Disney, if you had people in giant costumes with foam heads, <laughs> it's going to make any sort of emotional connection with the audience yes. a bit tougher, I imagine. Yeah. You know, you, there's only so much yeah. you can convey with a wave, no matter how uh, Absolutely. friendly Absolutely. Yeah. That was a big consideration, we especially did talk with about the masks, didn't we? Yeah. Mm. We, did, yeah, we eventually, or actually fairly quickly, I think, moved away from masks because we knew that um, we wanted to make sure there was no barrier, or at least as little barriers as possible, between this this creature and and the people watching the audience, so we knew that um, that anything that obscured the face a little bit too much we wanted to avoid. So we wanted to work with a more streamlined effect. And I suppose yeah, those oversized, more cartoony aspects of things that we yeah, we quite quickly knew we wanted to avoid. Also, practically speaking, there's a lot of fighting. Mm. So we needed a costume that allowed people to roll around on the floor and leap and jump and fight. And um, so we. Are using? Are we allowed to say this? What are we saying about the costumes? Don't know I'm not sure how much we're allowed to say, really. Well, I think we can say we're using um, traditional Japanese. Yeah, yeah, we focused a lot on clothing as inspiration clothing. because, as well in the comic, of course, there is so many, so many very traditional elements, and there's so much inspiration from that side of things that we needed to make sure we were including that and finding the essence of that, and and showing that tradition and that that period. Yeah, real challenge actually. Yeah. Stan is is famous for having researched sort of meticulously so the architecture, the traditional clothing, the samurai culture, the way people interact. Although they're animals, it's still very, very accurate, we believe, to that time period. So we wanted to find a, a theatrical language, I suppose, to sort of honour honour that time period um, very authentically and also honour the world of the comic book and be accessible to, as Stuart was saying, people who know Sagi and people who don't know Sagi and children as well as adults. So it's a bit of a challenge. Um, but I think we've come up with something that really will do that in a few weeks' time when we open. And in terms of doing visual research, obviously the comics are there as a wonderful resource, and as you say, incredibly meticulously researched already. But did you, did you go far beyond that in terms of looking at designs yourself beyond the comics? Yeah, yeah. I started off doing extremely general research on period traditions and materials anything anything at all really and had tons and tons and tons of images and this is often how I start how a lot of people start um, and then you, you strip back bit by bit you know you take your favorite ones you take little tiny aspects of one image that, that that says something to you and find links between those images and the the comics as well because that was a, a balancing act to make sure that it's an interesting project for me in that way. Often you might gather all this imagery and then go your way with it, whereas this time I had to gather the imagery, then find way to find the links between the comic, the original, and the images we had, and our separate ideas. Find those links and, and nurture those links, and then bit by bit you strip back and, and you get what you get at the end. But so so all sorts research from all sorts of different areas. Uh, I watched lots of films, um, Chinese films as well, things like Hero. Um, really enjoyed because of the the more mystical, magical movement and the the beauty of that movement, um, especially during the fighting. Anything really that that I felt had a little hint towards it. Um, not necessarily Japanese, even, you know. We had some field trips as well, didn't we? So we went to Victoria and Albert Museum to look at their Japan galleries, their collection of swords, as well as sort of uh, furniture, and I forget their name now, but the 
ornaments. Mitsuki. Yeah, for yeah, the favourite part in the Japanese yeah, gallery. It's mm-hmm. exquisite. Yeah. Um, and oddly enough, actually, not oddly and not aptly enough, often take the form of animals or semi-anthropomorphic yeah. <laughs> animals as well. Um, so that was very helpful. We went to the British Museum as well, their um, Japan and Asia galleries, and Amy and I have been going to lectures at the Japan Foundation as well for sort of a larger cultural grounding, I suppose, in what's going on in contemporary Japan as well as in the mm. past. And then I suppose in our own reading, we've been looking at, there was, there was Miyamoto Makashi's mm-hmm. Book of Five Rings, um, so a number of Stan's influences in creating the, the character of Asagi. Um, so I suppose there was a bit of literary research beyond the comics. We've got loads of books in the rehearsal room, actually. I've bought in some, and the actors have too. Lots of miscellaneous selection about Japan, history, um, samurai culture, zen, all sorts of things. So they're, yeah, they're doing a lot of reading as well. So it's a very sort of immersive preparation you're doing to get everyone... Yeah, and that also, what really helps is that the cast are fantastic. They're really genuinely excited about this piece, it seems, and very willing to do lots of work outside rehearsals, lots of research, and throw themselves into the fighting and the music and sort of movement, physical element of it, and the storytelling element. We haven't said yet, but we have a... Um, we have a chorus, so because there's so many characters and our cast is five, five plus musicians, so we've got five people who are playing characters, they have to play multiple characters, so the only person who's not is Usagi, or the actor playing Usagi, everyone else is playing loads of different people, <laughs> um, so we have a choral element um, within the script and also helped by the costumes being quite light on their feet um, in terms of how things are removed and put on. I forgot to say as well before, I did, I, I talked to a, a lot of Japanese friends because I used to live with some Japanese people when I lived abroad for a while and when I went to Japan. So I, so I spent a lot of time going over my old photographs of when I was there and reading through my old notebooks and then talking to friends as well in terms of thinking about contemporary Japan. But, but also, you know, very typical monuments that I had gone to see and very, um, to try and keep the link because of course... There might be people coming to see this play who know a lot about Japan, or there might be people who come and know nothing about Japan. So I suppose that's also a balance, just like how there might be fans of the comic for years and years versus people who don't know the comic at all. Mm. So I suppose that's always a, that's always a balance in theatre design. Having something that your audience can instantly recognise or instantly feel, even if uh, they don't know anything about the culture. But ultimately, I was going to say, it's a very good story. So I'm hoping that the fact that it's this brilliant story and a great character, actually anyone will be able to relate to. Mm. So that makes it accessible, and that's to do with Stan. Obviously, it's also to do with Stuart's adaptation for this show. Yeah, it's very easy to sort of write off comics that look like that and look mm. very sort of glib. Mm. But when you read Yusaki Jimbo, there's an incredible emotional depth to it. Yeah, absolutely. In terms of the, the look of the production, would you say, in terms of, I'm thinking particularly in terms of the background and the set, did you try and stay respectful to the comics but remove yourself from them or did you feel any sort of obligation to incorporate elements that would be recognisable from the comics? Yes, we. that's one thing we... Again, it was another balancing act. It was about figuring out how we wanted to present it visually. So were we going to replicate what was in the comics or were we going to create a world in which the comic could be brought to life, and I suppose that's what we've done eventually. We didn't want to completely replicate. We didn't want to just put that exact comic on stage because there's there's an element of that comic has its own life. Now, we're creating something which is an adaptation of that, and we need to create the, adap- the adapted world. So 
we wanted to, yes, be referencing it and staying true to the essence of the comic, but also finding our own path within that. So there are references and everything, all the inspiration has come very strongly from the comic for both the characters, their costume designs, their wigs and the set. But also you don't necessarily need to see that exact link. You know, that there's, there's, it's got a, it stands on its own two feet as well, I hope. And we're working with um, a video and projection designer called Nina Dunn, who is, again, doing a really lovely mixture of, sort of our own theatrical world, but also taking inspiration directly from the comic books in terms of using some of the exact images, but then sort of theatricalising them in a different way. There was a conversation months ago about do we need to have characters, like the cartoon characters, projected in some form, and we quite quickly rejected that because actually we have the characters live. That's the whole point. That's why, that's why we're doing this adaptation. So we didn't need them projected, but we do have lots of sort of backgrounds um, inspired by Stan's work. And some little things that I'm probably not going to give away, but a few little tricks from, from the comic, which we're going to put sort of almost directly into the show in a projection way. I, th- I think it was quite important to, well, to everyone involved, actually, to not attempt to replicate or replace I mean it, it's not possible to sort of replicate or replace what, what Stan has, Stan's achievement ideally people enjoy our piece and then you know if they haven't read the comics will be uh, excited and, and drawn to them equally um, I hope the people who have immersed themselves in, the, in, in, in his series will be able to appreciate uh, our, our show as, as something uh, something that works in conversation with them, I suppose, and has a has a life of its own and a relationship to the to the original. But um, I think it would be doing Stan's work a, a disservice as if we kind of slavishly tried to, um, you know, lift the comic and and just make actors speak it. I suppose. Yeah, we're not making a film. Yeah, <laughs> and it's a different medium. You know, it's yes. a completely different medium, and they're approached in different ways. But I was going to say, in terms of specific techniques that are available to you as well, and this talks very much about the tone of the show. Obviously, it's the story of a samurai. As you said, there are extended, uh, or certainly fight scenes. Mm-hmm. In the comics, uh, Stan Sakai can work around that quite well, because obviously the, the way he frames it, the transitions between the panels can tell you that someone's been hurt or killed without necessarily showing someone getting hurt or killed. You don't really have the option on stage to cut away to another another scene. You yeah. see the, the effects of the action. And obviously, it's a Christmas show. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you want families to come along, but you can't have throwing stars landing no. uh, in the side of people's heads, I imagine. No, that would not be ideal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the level of violence was a conversation me and Stuart have had right from the beginning, because... It's, it was quite a tricky one because in samurai culture, obviously honour is a huge, a hugely important thing. And especially actually in book two, Samurai, that we're adapting, there are quite a lot of moments of what might seem to a modern audience kind of gratuitous violence or people dying for doing very little wrong, seemingly. We are certainly having fights because it's about a samurai, but we're being very careful to have what we would call a sort of progression of fights or an escalation. So we, you know, we start with um, baby bunny rabbit going up until you know honed warrior rabbit, and about all that's training on route. So he doesn't immediately pick up a sword and is expert with it. He learns how to do that, and the amount of deaths actually is is not as large as in the comic. And the people who die, it's justified. <laughs> and we're looking at a sort of stylization of, of doing that as well. Well, I, I would say that violence is is a preoccupation of, uh, the, you know, the nature of violence is a, is a preoccupation of the the Isagi Yojimbo series, and in, and indeed that that story of samurai and, and that that particular book, 
it's, I think, one of the most important things Usagi learns in, with his training with Katsuichi-sensei is when to fight and when not to fight. And part of Stan's uh, achievement with the series is, is remarkable, of having some stories that, in which no fighting occurs whatsoever. Uh, I think one of my favourite my favorite Usagi Ujimbo stories is it's, it's, a, it's a wonderfully, exquisitely drawn story of the seaweed fishermen, the seaweed farmers, and there's only really a very short fight at the, at the end of that. Mostly it's about the, the, this traditional occupation of um, seaweed farmers who, and their, their trade and their craft. A wonderful little insight into that world, and Asagi, as, as a visitor to that village, um, guides us through it. I think that it's remarkable when a comics artist can compel our attention without resorting to cut and slash all the time. He really immerses us in the culture, and if we do our job right, we'll be able to do something of that as well in the show. Absolutely. We also have a taiko drummer. I haven't said that yet. So we have a live taiko drummer, which is quite exciting. Is that the large drum that will yeah, sort of set the rhythm drums. of certain... Yeah, yeah lots okay. of huge drums um, and big gongs as well, and Japanese flutes. So lots of live music. So again, a very sort of immersive experience for the audience as well, in terms yeah. of rather than just being a performance by people on the stage, you've got various different elements feeding into... Yeah. And the set, on the set design as well, the... Um, as we are led into the performance space and uh, the, the use of the space throughout the piece, the, the hope is to, to link the, the audience with the performance, either physically, parts of set that they are immersed by as they walk in, or, or interaction or, or spacing on the stage. It's one of the strengths of adaptation, is it doing what the original material couldn't do? You know, Stan's like, I can't add sound, he can't mm. move things around you in, in that way. So you, you can sort of take the spirit of the piece, but then do what's unique mm. to live performance with it. Yeah, I suppose create what is in the reader's head, their imagination, mm. we can add that, which is great. Yeah, that's in terms of the set design as well, I suppose, it's because we knew we wanted to work with projection and lighting in a very collaborative way, very interactive, you know, with the set, then the set has to allow space for that. The set cannot do everything because there is so much um, going on. There is so much detail in the comics and there is so much detail that could go into this that the set, we didn't want the set to have to do everything. We wanted to be able to have a space where the audience's imagination, whether they've read the comic or not, can take over and can be influenced and, and can move on from what we show them. I think that was quite key in the set design, really, to create a... We just, Amy described it as a playground. Yeah. Um, a playground where, um, in our eyes, that's how the comic is coming to life in this playground. I think one of the, one of the pleasures, one of the attractions for me about this project was typically, you know, as a playwright, you're asked to provide a piece of work that is dialogue-based and might be set in the present day and... Generally, samurai, samurai fighting doesn't feature very um, prominently in everyday life in the UK at the moment. More's the pity, I don't know. <laughs> um, so being able to not only enter that world, but also collaborate with artists that I might not necessarily have access to normally. So our fight director, Ronin Trainer, has been noting me on the adaptation. I've done rewrites based on his insights into samurai culture and based on... You know, his uh, working with the actors to stage the fights have really sort of... Actually, I can do that better. I can, I can rewrite that to um, better support the fight and, and better tell the story through the fight. Equally, sort of using video projection, 
Um, I've not done that in a show before, so that's really exciting to, to see that like real magic being thrown on the stage. And it's fully integrated with the lighting and the design and, and the acting, indeed. So it's going to be quite, not just an immersive, but in some respects an overwhelming experience for the audience of martial arts, music, um, animation, and hopefully a witty script with fantastic uh, acting in it. Another note on Ronan, actually. He's been, Ronan has been really helpful in terms of costume and props, um, especially the, the fighting props, the, the combat swords and things like that. I mean, he obviously knows a lot, and it's, it's amazing to be able to tap into that resource as a designer because you can do all the res- research you want, but at the end of the day, if you've not got the experience of what a samurai bow and arrow looks like, then how, you know, there's, there's aspects you miss, and it's important that we try our best to to achieve the best we can and achieve the most authentic things that we can when we're wanting to be authentic. Um, so he's been great, really helpful, and he's coming in to help the actors learn how to dress um, and learn how to handle their, their bokken and, and respect that as well, and that's been a really nice addition for me, certainly. Yeah, it's a performative element that I would imagine it's very hard to, to train an actor without that specific background, isn't it? How to, mm. how to carry a sword, how to, 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 to also carry yourself being armed is a very different thing, isn't it, I'd imagine? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and they're, like we said, they're brilliant and they're just really immersing themselves in it, all the cast. So um, it's interesting as a director actually working with a fight director because the fights have to tell the stories. If it's just gratuitous kind of sword slashing, that, that's not what we want. So... Um, we're doing all this work on the script and the characters and you know, why they're fighting, why they're doing what they're doing, and then Ronan's coming in and sort of adapting that into, into the movements and the fight sequences. So, um, yeah, it's been really brilliant, exciting. Thanks for joining me. Best of luck with the show, and um, I'll be sure to send people your way. Thank you very, Thank you very much. much. Thank you. <laughs> you can see performances of this production of Usagi Ojimbo at the Southwark Playhouse from the 28th of November 2014 to the 4th of January 2015. Go to southwarkplayhouse.co.uk for more information and book tickets. Process is part of the Holdfast Network. Go to holdfastnetwork.com for other podcasts you might enjoy.